This is Jill Scott, and I am the CEO and Managing Director of Flexible Work Solutions, and you are listening to the Academy's Developing Practice podcast. Hello, in this episode, we chat with Jill about her work with Flexible Work Solutions to support colleagues working in higher education to understand how to create an inclusive environment by understanding microaggressions and being an active bystander. We hope you enjoy. Hi, Jill. We're really pleased to be speaking with you today about about the work with your firm, Flexible Work Solutions, and how you are currently supporting colleagues Uh, particularly in higher education, to understand how to create an inclusive environment. But before we get started, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and how you have arrived at the position that you found yourself in today? Thanks, Matt. Uh, Yeah, I've actually been um, an equality, diversity and inclusion professional for about 25 years now. So I actually started long before it was a fashionable thing to do. So for me, it's great to see the, the interest that people now have in these sort of issues. But I actually began my career many, many years ago as an admissions assistant in higher education, did a variety of different roles in higher education and gradually became interested in that equality, diversity and inclusion field. So for me, it's been a very important part of my life for quite a long time. And I've gradually started to develop my interest and expertise around specific areas. So, for example, I'm particularly interested in gender and race equality issues got particular interest in bullying and harassment and addressing those types of things. So I've tended to sort of specialise in certain things. Recently, of course, there've been renewed interest around race, uh, microaggressions, that type of field. So I've been doing quite a lot of work on that. But for me, it's great to see institutions embracing the need to create that inclusive environment rather than just talking about it. Yeah, there's a groundswell of of movement, isn't there, at the moment? What organisations are coming to you at the moment? Is it higher education institutions, or have you are you getting a, a mixture? Um, I work with a whole range of uh, of organisations, but I like to focus on higher education because that's my background. Right, so yeah. I really understand the issues around higher education. Um, I know the culture. So I feel more comfortable in that space. But I do work with other public sector organisations, third sector and charity organisations, uh, and some private companies as well. And it seems to be across the board, this increased interest in EDI, which, you know, as I say, for it, it's not just great for me from a professional point of view. It, it's really important to me that organisations understand the need to create that inclusive environment. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you. And I guess then a part of the, the way of the world at the moment, in conjunction with people, you know, paying more attention and actually doing some real actions around this thing has meant that you can probably get out there a bit more with these messages because obviously we're talking online today so I guess the last couple of years has enabled you to to get out more and and have more of these conversations with a bigger audience is that fair? 
Yeah, that's definitely fair, Matt. And one of the interesting things is um, when the pandemic started, because I was doing all face-to-face delivery at that time, I was quite concerned that it would actually be a block. But what's actually happened is I've developed ways to actually produce online delivery, obviously using Zoom as a tool, but also trying to develop um, tools and uh initiatives that actually reach more people so Mm. as you say when you think these things are going to be a barrier sometimes they provide opportunities and that together with the the me too movement um the response after the murder of george floyd um increased interest in disability neurodiversity all of those things have become much more important to people And there's much more raised awareness around the whole spectrum of things um, in relation to equality, diversity and inclusion. Clearly more visible trans people now, which is also great. You know, when I first started, um, people didn't even think about the position of trans people. They were sort of invisible. So to see that visibility, even though, of course, it brings its challenges, um, it's really important to me to see um, how high profile these things are, particularly with younger people, actually. That's fantastic. One of the best podcasts that we've recorded um, is with someone called Christian Owens, and um, he came to talk to us about trans um, issues. And it was so interesting to us because I think it builds on this desire that we have across the sector and across our university to create inclusive environments Um, But sometimes we just don't know how to do that. And the reason we met, Jill, was because you've been um, delivering some really brilliant workshops for the University of Liverpool around this whole concept of what it is to be inclusive and how to create these environments um, that celebrate inclusion. So I thought it'd be really good if we could start, if you could just define for us, what do we mean by an inclusive environment? Thanks, Alex. Uh, Yeah, um, I agree. Sometimes we use these sort of terms in very general ways, not really being aware of what they mean. Uh, For me, an inclusive environment is one in which everyone feels welcome and as though they truly belong. But actually, that's something that's quite challenging to achieve. Um, It's about allowing people to bring their whole selves to work and creating that culture where people don't feel they have to conceal anything or hide any aspect of who they are. So I grew up at a time when it was actually illegal to be gay. So I can remember those times where if you were a gay man, you took great steps to actually conceal that. That is so bad for everybody. There's a term that's called covering, and that's used to describe people who don't feel able to share aspects of their identity with their colleagues for fear of being judged or discriminated against. And the problem with that is not only does it create that anxiety and people have to always be on the alert about giving themselves away, but it also has a detrimental effect on performance and achievement. So there's some interesting research that shows that when people are closeted, for example, LGBT employees, to use an example, who don't feel able to be out, they're much more isolated at work, and they also feel their careers are stagnating in comparison with people who are able to be out. 
So for me, inclusion isn't just a personal issue. It's something that employers should have a vested interest in because it affects the way in which people can perform in the workplace. Another important aspect of inclusion is actually recognising that diversity and inclusion aren't the same. I think there's a bit of a danger that some employers think that if they've got that diversity and they've managed to recruit people who look a bit different, they can tick that box and that's job done. The problem with that is that although diversity is an important aspect of inclusion, simply introducing people who visibly look different isn't the end of the story and doesn't necessarily make you inclusive. In fact, as I've sort of hinted earlier, sometimes diversity makes it even more difficult to create that inclusive environment. You actually have to work harder. That's because you need to promote that mutual respect and understanding between people and acknowledge those differences whilst recognising the value that those differences bring, but also being aware of the challenges. So for me, It's not easy because sometimes we say things like, oh, yeah, we respect diversity within our workplace as though it's simple. But it's not actually as straightforward as that. It's not even just about the protected characteristics. It's about all those differing viewpoints, attitudes, beliefs. And most of us live in a bubble where we surround ourselves with people with a similar worldview And moving beyond that comfort zone is actually quite challenging for us. So for me, that's where microaggressions come in. They often happen when we are encountering people that we don't normally meet, we're not too familiar with. When we're not relaxed and comfortable with people, that's when we can actually shade over into behaving in a slightly inappropriate way. So do you think... um... That's really interesting in terms of that concept of covering and hiding parts of ourselves that don't potentially fit a mould. Is the mould still the white male in terms of higher education, do you think? And actually, we hide aspects of who we truly are because maybe even subconsciously, we still have this image in our heads that actually to get ahead in academia, we have to be white and male or is that unfair? No, no, I think it's quite fair. And one of the challenges is that obviously you can see um, I am a mixed race person and I'm a woman. When I took the Harvard Implicit Association test, I expected to, to go through with flying colours, but I actually discovered that even I myself still associate the workplace more with men than with women. And I've been a working parent my whole life. And I would have said, no, I definitely don't have a bias around that. So Unconsciously, I think a lot of us still carry these ideas with us, often without realising it. So that's part of the problem. It's not about white men actually um, creating a climate where everyone else feels uncomfortable. It's about us all carrying those ideas with us, often from childhood or what we see in society in general, and bringing those ideas into the workplace without realising it. 
So when you look at the statistics, it is unfortunately still the case that both in the academic sphere and in the management and professional sphere, there are still far greater numbers of white men than would be if we had a fairness and equality about the numbers of people who should be managing our institutions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I also want to pick up on that term covering as well, because it just reminded me of um, what neurodiverse, uh, maybe people actually on the uh, ASD spectrum would would yeah. would call uh, masking yeah. and how exhausting masking yeah. is um, for, for people, you know, having to do that all day in a workplace setting, having to subconsciously sometimes do that all day yeah. won't undoubtedly affect uh, their mental health uh, and Absolutely. possibly their performance as well. So, I, you know, we need to really uh, to investigate these these things yeah. and understand yeah. them, um, I think, is probably the, the, the best word. Yeah, definitely, Matt. Definitely agree with that. And that emotional energy you're spending trying to fit in and trying to be someone that really you're not – that that is bound to take its toll on people, isn't it? You know, mm. life is hard enough without having that as an additional burden. The other thing I'd say about neurodiverse people is they've got all sorts of talents that I think we don't always capitalise on. Uh, sometimes we focus on, oh, these are the challenges that neurodiverse people bring without recognising there are some things that many types of neurodiversity gives you a real edge about we should be focusing on how can we maximize the potential how can we use those gifts and talents and not trying to fit everybody into the same box um one of the things that i'm really passionate about is trying to identify individual capabilities i, I think Far too often, organisations and institutions try to fit people into a set mould rather than really digging down and identifying what is that person really good at? How can we actually adapt our roles so that we are giving people much more about what they're good at and not saying, here's a job, this is what we need done, let's try and fit everyone, squeeze everyone into that mould? And I think actually... We've started to do a little bit of that in terms of the pandemic has made people work in a different way. Now I think we need to take that next step and start thinking about job design in general and how we actually think about fitting people into roles. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, without a shadow of a doubt. It's something I've been thinking about quite a lot recently with uh, my son's autistic. So he yeah. um, he's got a lot of skills that would be massively useful to lots of organizations like yeah. his hyper focus his his natural ability to research topics which he has a focus in i mean it's just it's it's another level yeah. it's another level of detail that he will go into and i just think there's so many organizations could use that and harness that yeah. um so yeah def, not break, breaking the mold i think around role design is something i completely agree with yeah definitely You mentioned earlier, uh, you just touched on microaggression. So I'd just like to just come back to that, if, if that's okay. Of course. You, you held uh, some workshops recently, which helped colleagues understand what microaggressions are and, and how can we avoid them. Can you just give us a little bit more uh, insight onto those? I, I attended that workshop and 
to be honest with you, I felt a bit uneasy at times because I thought, I've done some of these microaggressions. And I just thought, oh, you know, when you reflect back, especially maybe over the years, maybe 10, 15 years ago in private companies, I just thought, how would that, how did that person feel when I was, when I was asking those sort of what I thought were innocent questions? So could you just give us a little bit more of your insight into those? Absolutely. Um, Microaggressions are like those small things that we say or do that make other people feel uncomfortable or unwelcome. And often they're based on stereotypes or unconscious bias. And as I sort of suggested beforehand, those are things that all of us use. All of us have unconscious bias. And we don't always realize how that's coming across to people. In terms of the term microaggressions, actually, it's quite a misleading term because um, it's not micro. Micro implies something small and possibly insignificant, and it isn't necessarily aggression either. It often arises from that lack of understanding and discomfort that we feel when we're engaging with people who are outside our usual group. So obviously, we've had um, an example very recently um, when people from a charitable organization were invited to Buckingham Palace to be greeted with, where are you really from? Now, that scenario is is something that most of us who um, look different are familiar with, but it also unfortunately re-emphasizes the fact that microaggressions are still alive and well. But some of them are more subtle than that, really. And the thing to bear in mind is that understanding microaggressions isn't about intent. Sometimes people are well-meaning, but they just haven't educated themselves about what the impact is of what they're saying or doing. So in the example that I've just used, um, I looked on Twitter and quite a number of white people were saying things like, oh, well, it's obvious she didn't mean any harm and she's over 80. What do you expect from older people? Or people ask me where I'm from all the time and I don't take offence. But that comes from a place of not understanding that your experience is different from someone else's. Because if you are a white person and if you are obviously using a British accent, it's very unlikely that when somebody says to you, where are you from, there's any undertones about, are you a British person? And that was the problem with this example. It was about seeking some sort of information where somebody could read into that, you're implying I'm not British. You're you're saying that I'm not welcome here because of what I look like. And uh, John Amici, who I really respect, had something very interesting to say. And uh, he said, the people whose racism we excuse because of their age all seem to have managed to adapt to the myriad of changes over the last 50 years with aplomb, from iPhones to e-banking, but somehow learning how to be civil to people different from them has escaped them. 
And I was interested in that because I think sometimes people say things like, oh, you can't expect older people to change now. They've been saying these sort of things for years. Uh, They don't mean any harm by it. But the problem is, even if they don't mean any harm, microaggressions cause harm to other people. Now, not necessarily all other people, but most people understand that there are certain things that are likely to be taken in a particular way. So let let me, uh, uh, it's hard to explain to people sometimes the impact that microaggressions have. So sometimes I use this example. So occasionally my son, who is gay, people would say to him, oh, you don't even look gay. And then If he would say, oh, I don't think that's an appropriate thing to say, people would go, oh, you're being oversensitive. I didn't mean anything like it. But then I say, how would you feel if I said to you, wow, you don't even look straight? And that happened not just once, but regularly. Would you think that was appropriate? Or would that start to become a problem for you? Because you would be wondering, what am I implying? So for me, A good rule of thumb is, would I phrase my question or comment in the same way, no matter who I was talking to? If you would think that was entirely appropriate, no matter who you spoke to, you're probably on safe ground. But if you think, oh, I might say something different depending on the gender of the person, depending on the race of the person, depending on their sexual orientation or whatever it might be then you need to think again because there is a potential for it to be a microaggression. That's so interesting, Jill, and everything that you shared in your fantastic workshops as well around microaggressions. It's it's just stayed with me and I've reflected on it. um, And that's why I was so desperate to get you on the podcast as well. I've been thinking back to one of my previous institutions and um, I as part of my role, I had to attend the university heads of department meeting. And I remember one of the senior management team used to refer to the male doctors and professors in the room as professor and their surname and the females by their first name. And it happened time and time again. And I remember at the time we'd all go, oh, you know, raise your eyebrows, but, but nothing ever really, well, nothing ever got said. Uh, And it was kind of just accepted that that's the way it was. And I don't think I even really reflected on it that much when I um, was in the situation. But reflecting on it since, I think it did stop me speaking up um, and having an opinion, even though we were all, you know, we were all heads of department, we were all the same level. But because they were Professor such and such and I was Alex, I don't know. I just, it, it, did it keep me in my place? I don't know. It, It made me feel like my voice wasn't as valid. And I'm just, I'm trying to work out because obviously this kind of thing does happen in HE and across the sector and and in lots of areas of life. Should I have spoken up then? Do we do we confront that? Um, it's so hard to know how to handle those situations, those microaggressions. Yeah. Um, Alex, what you've said, that's a perfect example of why it's a problem, isn't it? And for me, What should really happen is it would be so much easier if someone who was there who wasn't 
the target, so to speak, had actually stepped in because it's so much more difficult for you as the person who is the target to say, oh, excuse me, um, uh, I feel a bit uncomfortable that you're referring to me as Alex when you're calling Dr. So-and-so or Professor So-and-so, this, that or the other. So it's so much easier for people who are part of that group with power and privilege to actually challenge those things not only because then you are not always the person who is putting your hand up and saying, oh, excuse me, I'm not happy about this. And then you become labelled. You become labelled as a troublemaker or, oh, women are always complaining about this or black people are always saying that or disabled people always have a chip on their shoulder about X, Y, Z. When somebody else does it, not only do you take away that, oh, now I've got an excuse to discount that because they're just being whatever group it is. But those people are treated with more respect. Their opinions are more respected by somebody who is actually the perpetrator of a microgroup, whether they recognize that or not, because that behavior comes from a lack of respect. It comes from a place of, oh, I'm not articulating the fact that these women are less important or less worthy of respect than the men. But in inside, that's where that comes from, isn't it? Treating people differentially is sort of your opinion seeping out in a way that often you yourself aren't even aware of. So for me, it's far more important to actually help people to understand being an ally and being an active bystander and stepping in and challenging that is way easier for them to do that when it's an obvious microaggression or even more than a microaggression sometimes, goes beyond that sometimes, that behaviour. It's so much easier for someone who is not the target to do it. And going back to that question about creating an inclusive environment, that's part of everyone accepting their responsibility to actually support their colleagues and challenge these things when they happen and not expect somebody else to do it. And particularly not put all the responsibility on the people who are the targets of this behavior to actually say, oh, I need to raise this again. Oh, you obviously didn't realize that's inappropriate. Yeah, I recognise the the term active bystander from you from your session, Jill. To do that role as an active bystander, do you need to just be brave and just be outspoken? Is that what it needs to do that? Or, you know, is there something else that being an active bystander is? Yeah. Um obviously in the course we go into that in quite some detail because simply to say to people, oh, you need to step up and be an active bystander, that's really challenging. Mm. Um it's really difficult, even for the most extrovert people, to go into maybe a meeting where there are senior people, where there are people who, who are your peers or people who are important to your career and challenge what you think is inappropriate behavior. So part of it is about understanding what the barriers are. And it's also about not only breaking down those barriers, but creating that climate where challenging inappropriate behavior becomes the norm. And it's also about doing it in the right way. It's not about embarrassing people or humiliating people. Yeah. 
It's about um, using it as an educational opportunity in the first instance and giving people a chance, as you as you said before, Matt, we all do these things, particularly about groups we're not familiar with. So even though I'm an EDI person, I'm sure that I've been the perpetrator of microaggressions for groups that I don't belong to myself. So it's not about sort of pointing the finger and saying to people, oh, you're a terrible person, you've done this. It's about helping people to understand, as I said before, the impact of what they've said or done on someone in a different group. And when we've used that as an educational opportunity, ask people to reflect upon, why did you think that was appropriate? What did you mean when you said X, Y, or Z? They've then got an opportunity to think for themselves. We're not telling them what the right thing is to do, but we are pointing out the potential impact of what they've done and why that might be hurtful or damaging to someone. So for me, it's much more about creating that appropriate uh, environment for people to reflect upon how they behave, for other people to be willing to stand together and support their colleagues when something has happened. And it's about all of us being willing to be open uh, and reflect upon ourselves because we're all learning. It, it Life is a learning experience, isn't it? Yeah. Things change. Um, we, we encounter different people that we're not used to. Um, one of the interesting things that I've learned during my life is that nobody no, the more you learn about EDI, the more you realize that actually there's still loads more to learn. So my ex-husband used to work with people with learning disabilities and the degree of ignorance that a lot of people exhibit around people with learning disabilities is actually shocking. But you only know that once you start to engage with them, once you start to actually become familiar with, with the range of learning disabilities that people can have, but also the huge amount of capabilities, once again, that people with learning disabilities can exhibit. So there's always more to learn. There's always more to do. And all of us need to sort of be continually reflecting on have things changed? You know, yeah. um, do I need to be doing things differently? It doesn't matter. We might have been doing this for 20 or 30 years. Is it the right thing? Is it actually helping people to feel comfortable, to feel as though they're working in an inclusive environment? And although it might have been the norm 20 or 30 years ago, we know very well lots of things that were the norm then are now considered totally unacceptable but there are still some things on the fringes where I think we can do better. Yeah. And I really like your message there about, you know, we're always learning. I think that's the, the real key, isn't it? So yeah. to be an active bystander, first you have to learn around, learn about microaggressions. You have to sort of, you be able to have that radar on to be picking yeah. them up and think, ah, that actually isn't okay for that person. Yeah. And it's, you know, and I've in a position of power to say something. Yeah, so that, yeah, absolutely. I really, I really like that message, Jill, about you know, learning about it as the first first step. Yeah, definitely. The reason why I use microgrip because obviously active bystander can be a standalone program. For me, 
it's important to help people understand that not everything is obvious and overt. You know, people are much more clued up now on, you know, if you use totally inappropriate language, people are aware of that. If you say something that's overtly sexist, racist, trans, homophobic, people will normally pick up on that. If it's obvious bullying, people will see that. But it's that more subtle behavior that we need to sort of sensitize ourselves towards. So um, I know some people would say, oh, we're creating people who are snowflakes. You can't say anything nowadays. But for me, that's just based on respect. Why should people go into work and feel upset or embarrassed or humiliated by things that other people have said? For me, that's not okay. And I don't think it's anything about um, being oversensitive. I think it's about us recognizing that other people's experiences are different from our own. So even something as simple as when I was younger, as soon as you got engaged, people would say to you, oh, when are you going to get married? And then they would say, when are you going to have a baby? And I started to reflect upon that. And it's like, that might be fine for most people, but supposing you desperately wanted a baby and you couldn't have one and people were continually asking you these questions. So in itself, it's not about whether or not that's appropriate. It's about it feels intrusive and unnecessarily harmful and damaging to actually make assumptions about that. So allow other people to start those conversations if they want to. If they don't want to or if it's a difficult subject for them, just be sensitive to that. So it's just about helping people to understand that different people have different vulnerabilities, different challenges, different histories and backgrounds. So going back to what I was saying about diversity, Diversity means difference. That is what it means. And it's about recognizing that one person's this is fine with me is another person's that is so difficult and challenging an issue for me. And I think that's a great thing. And it goes back also, Matt, to what you were saying about that personalization. There's not enough of that. There's too much of a one size fits all. So for me, really recognizing diversity is the key, not in itself, but unless we do understand what the whole spectrum of diversity is, we're never really going to understand why this is important. And it's about individual responses. It's about individual challenges and those things that make us unique as a human being. I think you're right, Jill. I also think um, we've got a lot, well, every school's different, but we've got a lot to learn from the way the primary and secondary sectors are leading on this. I'm, I'm a governor in um, a primary and a secondary school at the moment. I'm crossing over and um, speaking to the children, they are so much more open to diversity and it's just part of their narrative. Obviously, every child's different, but from my experience, they're, they're really happy to just have these conversations and celebrate diversity. So, you know, what Matt was saying about children with um learning difficulties they're just accepted and celebrated you know and and people from different backgrounds are accepted and celebrated as well and it's not even really a conversation um in the way that we're having the conversation because I mean when I chat to my children about it 
they're like, why are we even discussing it? it of course. Yeah. What's, <laughs> um, what's the problem? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. As I said, when I grew up, being gay was illegal. Um, my son, who is now 29, um, came out at school when he was 13. Mm. That would have been utterly unthinkable yeah. when I was I, I, I was in a school of 1200 kids there was not even so much as a hint that anybody was gay or lesbian that that just wasn't even a, an option for people and so I never met anyone who was openly gay until I went to university and and I just think it's so amazing now that kids just feel able to say yeah this is my identity. This is mm. what I see myself as and be accepted for that. You know, going back to that thing about covering, let's hope this generation yeah. won't feel that's necessary because it's just it's just so liberating, isn't it, to be able to be yourself. And I absolutely agree with you, Alex. The um, primary and secondary sector is really leading more than higher education mm. and we can learn some lessons from them about that. Absolutely. Well, Jill, we've got to the end of the podcast and we always like to finish it in the same way where we ask our guest if we could have three or four take-home tips that the listener could reflect on in terms of their own personal practice. So if you do have a few thoughts or tips that people can reflect on, what would they be? Thanks, Matt. Um, I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating. Um, people sometimes forget the diversity part of equality, diversity, inclusion, the fact that we are actually all different. When we relate to other people, we often behave as though everyone else is the same as us or will respond to things in the same way that we would. But the reality is no one else is the same as us. We're all unique. We have different backgrounds, experiences, preferences. So being sensitive to that variety and difference can often help us to create better relationships with other people and give us that inclusive environment we're looking for. The second thing I would say is to remember that we're all going to make mistakes. The only way to be absolutely sure you're not going to get something wrong is not to do anything. So in the EDI space, things are changing all the time and it's really difficult to people to keep up. And people worry about things like language and terminology and they say, oh, I can't talk about this because I don't know the right terms to use. So, for example, I still use the term BAME, which I know is something that some people don't feel comfortable with for quite understandable reasons. However, there's constant debates about all the alternatives. So there's now not really a generally agreed term. So for me, it's better to pick a term, explain why you're using it, but to be open to people saying, actually, I'm not happy with that. And using what's right, once again, that individual choice, allowing people to define themselves in the way that they choose. And if you use a term where people are saying, no, actually, that isn't the term I use, use that as a learning experience. Apologize if someone's offended by a term that you've used because they think it's outdated and, and learn from that and understand that different people will select different things. 
But on the whole, try not to allow the fear of making mistakes to stop you stepping up and doing your best as an ally. Finally, I am going to use the term privilege, which I know sometimes makes people feel uncomfortable. But for me, most of us have some forms of privilege and we don't always appreciate the extent to which we can use that to support others. When people are experiencing microaggressions or other forms of inappropriate behavior, it is so much easier for people with that power and privilege to call it out. So as I mentioned in your example, Alex, that would have been way easier for one of the men present to say, I think it would be better if we used either first names or titles for everybody. What would most people prefer? So it's about recognizing when you are in a position of power and privilege, and it's about using that to support those people who are in a more vulnerable or disadvantaged situation. Privilege as a term sometimes makes people feel as if they're being criticized, but actually the privilege we have is is usually beyond our control. But what isn't beyond our control is the extent to which we use those privileges to support and uplift people who are less fortunate than we are ourselves. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us to reflect upon what privileges do I have and how can I use them to support people who have less privilege and are less fortunate within my particular workplace. Brilliant. Thanks, Jill. That has been a fascinating conversation. Thanks for your time with us today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Well, it was brilliant to have Jill on the podcast and we discussed what a truly inclusive environment involves, an environment where everyone feels welcome and that they truly belong. Jill talked about how important it is to create a culture where people can bring their whole selves to work and our differences embraced. Yes, I found our discussion with Jill really interesting. I particularly like what she was talking about in terms of microaggressions. I really like the tip that she gave us that said, if you would ask your question or make your statement to anyone, then it's probably okay. But if the question or statement needs to be changed, depending on maybe a person's gender or race, for example, then it's potentially a microaggression. I'm certainly going to use that as a rule of thumb moving forward. Well, there's lots within that podcast for us to think about and reflect on. If you'd like to take your thinking further, we've added some resources to the website on a specific podcast reading list, which you can access at liverpool.ac.uk forward slash the hyphen academy forward slash podcast. Also, we'd love to hear what you thought about the episode. So please do tweet us at Live Uni Academy. And you can also find us at eLearnerMatt or at Alexandra underscore Owen on Twitter. And we are really grateful for those who have taken the time to either rate or review our show in your podcast providers app. So if you haven't done so already, please do take the time to review our show or even better, simply share the episode with friends and colleagues on your social media. Bye for now.